invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 as we continue our series. Again, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to bring one along and just be able to follow along as we, as we go. I think it often can be helpful in our study together. I want to uh, share an experience I had uh, reading a book. Um, this was years ago. I used to uh, try and take a day each week to get away from the office, to go away from phones, um, just away from the distractions of all the things on my desk, and spend a day uh, praying and reading and studying uh, away from the office. And uh, one of the books at this particular time that I was reading was one that I had come across on uh, a syllabus uh, for a leadership course at Regent where I did my graduate studies. I hadn't been able to take the course, but I was curious about it. I got the syllabus and, and the list of books on leadership, and so I bought one of them. It was a novel by Richard Adams called uh, Watership Down. I don't know, perhaps some of you have read that. Well, I was away this particular Wednesday. Uh, I went downtown often, and between... Uh, City Center Mall East and West, there was a Pedway. They used to have these nice lounge chairs there, and I would get there early in the morning, grab a chair, and just spend much of the day there uh, reading and praying. And so I was sitting there on the Pedway. I still remember very clearly sitting there. And, and part of my morning, I was reading this book, Watership Down. And I remember this... Watership Down, by the way, is, uh, it's, it's a novel. It, it tells a story. It's set in southern England. It tells a story, get this, about a group of rabbits. It's a story about a group of rabbits who find that their home is, is, uh, faces destruction, and so they, they need to seek a new place to establish uh, a new home, a new warren, and they face all kinds of dangers and temptations along the way. This is a book about rabbits. I remember sitting there reading one particular Wednesday morning, reading this book, and at one point stopping and just recognizing in that moment that physiologically I was experiencing something. My heart was actually racing. I felt it pounding in my chest, and I thought, this is a little ridiculous. This is a book about rabbits. But stories can do that. Stories are powerful. Stories can get our hearts racing and our blood pumping. Uh, stories can communicate to us and do things uh, for us that just mere prose can't. I mean, we, we see this fleshed out throughout Scripture often. Jesus told lots of stories. There's, there's lots of stories. I mean, think of the story of, of David, King David, when he stayed back in Jerusalem while his armies went out to war. And one night he couldn't sleep. He got up. Of course, he, he looked off the palace roof and saw a woman bathing, and he lusted for her, sent for her, uh, had sex with her that night. And, and then then she got pregnant, and oh no, what is he going to do? He called her husband back from the war, and hoping that he would go home, and then uh, everyone would just think it's his baby, and everything's good, and that didn't work. Uriah came back and said, how can I go home and, and be with my wife when my, my fellow soldiers are out at the front? So he slept at the palace gate, so David plotted to kill him. He said, you know, he sent message with Uriah back to the front and said, I want Uriah to be right up at the front where the fighting is the, the fiercest, and then uh, I want everyone to pull back so that he's struck down and killed. And that happened. And David took Bathsheba into the palace, married her. She became his wife. And then God sent Nathan to tell a story. Nathan, the prophet, came and said, 
David, I want to tell you a story about two men. One was rich, had lots of flocks, cattle, and sheep, and a poor man who who was able to buy one little ewe lamb, and it was like a child. I mean, grew up with his kids, and they fed it at the table. It was like a daughter to him. And, and one day, a guest came, and that rich man wanted to provide a meal. And so, uh, rather than taking one of his own sheep from his vast flocks, he took that ewe lamb, slaughtered it, and made a meal. And remember David's response. He's like, that guy should die. I mean, he lost his mind. Stories are powerful. They have a way, uh, the ability to move us in profound ways, unlike that of mere prose. Eugene Peterson says this about the stories, the imagery that we encounter in the Revelation. Revelation's images are not mere illustrations of something that can be said more directly. A picture makes its own statement, is its own text. These stories, these images, these pictures that we encounter in Revelation uh, serve a purpose. God has given them to us to move us. And they move us in profound ways. Stories are powerful. This morning we come to what is the theological center of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. And here we encounter a story. Powerful story, a spectacular cosmic story, a story that will make our blood pump and our hearts race. Of course, the goal here is not to entertain us, but to shape us, to prepare us as disciples of Jesus for life in this world. And if you are not yet a disciple of Jesus, to beckon you to come to Jesus, to surrender your life and live in this world in light of what it means to be His disciple. A few words of reminders for us regarding the ground we've already covered. The book of Revelation, literally the title is The Apocalypse, is an unveiling. In these pages, Jesus speaks to us. Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real. So that we, we, we can uh, see the present in light of the unseen reality of the future so that we can see the present in light of the unseen reality of the present. And there's more going on than meets our physical eyes. Jesus. John encounters Jesus on the Lord's Day. John has been exiled. He's now in his mid-80s. He's an old man. He was a disciple of Jesus. And he's been exiled by Rome to a volcanic lump of rock in the Aegean Sea. And on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day, John is in the Spirit worshiping, and suddenly he hears a voice behind him, and he turns, and it's Jesus, the exalted and glorified Christ, the Messiah, the one he followed. And Jesus commissioned John to write down what he sees and send it to the churches. We walked through seven messages from Jesus to seven particular churches in the province of Asia. Uh, encouraging them, affirming what is good, rebuking them, warning them about things that are not bad, seeking to prepare them for what is about to happen. Things are about to get worse for the church in, in the province of Asia. From there, John shared with us the vision of heaven. John looked and he saw through a doorway a throne that is above every other throne. He saw visually, spectacularly, that, that God is on the throne that is above every other throne, that, that God is the sovereign one, that God is over all things, no matter what might appear to be the case. And he saw Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, and he realized, he recognized in that vision that Jesus is the one who is worthy to bring to fulfillment all of God's purposes for judgment and redemption. 
From there, we walked through the opening of the seven seals, the scroll that was in God's hand. And, and that served as a, a movie trailer, introducing us to themes and, and the basic plot line of what was to come. Violence and war, famine, death, martyrdom for believers and judgment for the inhabitants of the earth. And the question is asked and answered, who can stand when God's judgment is poured out? Who can stand? And the answer is the people of God, those who have put their faith in the Lamb who was slain. More recently, we've walked through the seven trumpet blasts. Trumpet blasts that are God's acts of judgment, not His complete final judgment, no partial judgment. They are an invitation, they are a call, a warning to come to Christ, to receive life. And again, an interlude vision that we looked at last week before the seventh trumpet was sounded that reminds us John is commissioned to prophesy again to declare God's words. The church is called to bear witness, the two witnesses, to bear witness in the face of suffering, even as the Gentiles trample the temple. That is, in this season of opposition and suffering that the church is called and commissioned to bear witness to Christ and to the hope of the gospel. All of that has happened. We heard a hymn sung from heaven celebrating salvation, that it has come and today we come to chapter 12, which is the theological center of the book. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read Revelation 12. We'll read the whole chapter 1 to 17. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would take, be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. 
Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. I want to do four things, or I want to ask four questions with you this morning as we walk through the text. Uh, First is, who do we encounter in this story? Second, what do we see happening in this story? Third, how are you and I impacted, involved in this story? And fourth, how should you and I respond to this story? So question number one, who do we encounter in this story? There are three main characters that we encounter, three main players, three main actors. The first one is introduced to us right off the hop in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven... A woman, we read on in this description of her, she was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And, and uh, quite, quite the vision, John sees this. He sees this sign, this woman who is, who is dressed in, in the sun, standing on the moon. I mean, later on in Revelation, we're going to encounter another woman who will be will encounter dressed in scarlet. But here, imagine what he saw. Imagine this vision that he sees this woman dressed in the sun, radiating brilliant light, standing on the moon, stars on her head. We learn more. She was pregnant, cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. She's, as I say, very pregnant. I know that you were either pregnant or not pregnant, but, but I think you all know what I mean when you say someone is very pregnant. They're, they're very, very close to not being pregnant anymore. She's very pregnant, about to give birth. Imagine what John saw, this, this woman dressed in the sun, standing on the moon, stars around her head, about to give birth. Brilliant image described for us. But who is this woman? Well, we are given a clue here in the very description of how she's dressed. Uh, but first note this, we read a great sign appeared in heaven. A sign, of course, is something pointing beyond itself. A sign is is pointing to something other than itself. So this woman that John describes, this woman that John sees is, is a sign pointing to, a, 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 to the reality. A, a, a sign points to something else, okay? So who does this woman point to? Who, who does this woman represent? Well, we have a clue in the description of what she's wearing. Some of you will recall Genesis 37. Uh, Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, is out in the fields, he has a dream, and he tells it, he has two dreams. He tells his brothers that in one of his dreams, they, they are all out in the fields and gathering grain, and his sheaf of grain stands up straight, and all his brother's sheaves of grain bow down and, and, uh, before his. And that doesn't bless their hearts. I don't know if you've ever experienced sibling, sibling rivalry, but certainly not a happy moment in, in that family. And then he has another dream, and he he describes, uh, he says, the, the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bow down to him. Of course, that ends up leading to him being sold into slavery. His brothers lose it. But that description echoes what we see here. The sun, the moon, and in the dream, 11 stars, presumably he's the 12th. In other words, this imagery reminds us of, it points to the patriarchal family. Jacob and his wife and his 12 children. This woman 
is a sign of Israel. This woman is a sign of God's people, but we can say more. She is pregnant, very pregnant, as I said. There, there are several places in the Old Testament where Old Testament prophets speak about, describe the nation of Israel as being pregnant, like Micah 5.3, where we read this. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. There are other texts too. So, so this woman, who is a sign, uh, points to Israel, the patriarchal family, the nation that descended from them, points to Israel who bears a son, that is, points to the messianic community, the, the community, God's people through whom the Messiah will come, a son will be born, but we can say even more. A bit later in the unfolding drama of just this chapter, Revelation 12, we see clues that point to the fact that this woman is also a sign of the church. After uh, part of the story that we'll get to, just jumping ahead a little bit, uh, the son born uh, is, is, is Christ. And after Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension, uh, we encounter this woman again. And so she points also to the people of God, the new people of God, the church. Daryl Johnson writes this, She is the people of God, both before and after the coming of Jesus, representing Israel and the church. This woman is the people of God throughout history, through whom the Messiah came, who the Messiah redeemed. We meet a second main character, another sign, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Another sign that is pointing to a uh, reality beyond itself. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Red is the color of blood. This dragon will wage war, will bring suffering, will bring death. Seven heads. The head is a sign of authority. Seven is the number of complete, completion of, of fullness. This dragon has seven heads. It has full authority. Of course, we know that that authority is only what is allowed by the will of God. This dragon has authority, fullness of authority. This dragon, ten horns. Horns are a sign of power, of might, of strength. Ten horns, complete strength. This dragon, the color of blood, has authority and has great strength. Martin Luther wrote this about the dragon, on earth is not his equal. This dragon, though, is a sign pointing to a reality beyond, beyond itself. And what is that? Verse 9 makes explicit the identity of this dragon. We read, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. What we discover is that this dragon is a sign pointing to the evil one, to Satan, to the devil. That ancient serpent who in Genesis 3 deceived Eve and led Adam and Eve into sin, who, who seeks to lead all of humanity in rebellion against God. In the drama of Revelation 12, the dragon is God's arch enemy who is against God and all that is good. The third and final actor in the drama of Revelation 12 is the one whom the woman is about to give birth to. And unlike what was true for both the woman and the dragon, this third actor is not a sign. It's not pointing beyond itself. No, He is, this Son to be born, is reality itself. He is the promised Messiah, the Rescuer, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. This is Jesus. So we encounter the people of God through whom the Messiah comes and who follow the Messiah, who are redeemed by the Messiah. We encounter Satan, who is God's archenemy, 
and rebellion against God and all that is good, and we encounter Jesus, the Messiah, the one who has come to redeem. Question two, what do we see happening in this story? What we see happening next is horrifying and graphic. John looks and he sees this woman dressed in the sun, standing on the moon, stars around her head. She is pregnant, in labor, about to give birth, and right in front of her, is the dragon ready to devour this infant, this child, the moment he is born? Picture the woman, feet in stirrups. I mean, this is the moment of birth, and the dragon is there, not to help, but to devour, to kill, to destroy. Here is what God spoke of back in Genesis 3. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. This woman, the messianic community of God's people through whom the Messiah comes, faces the enmity of Satan, that ancient serpent, ready to destroy the seed of the woman, to end it right here. At this moment in the drama, as she's about to give birth, he's there ready to pounce, ready to devour, ready to end the life of this child. But look with me at what happens. Verse 5, we read this. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The dragon's plan is foiled. He, he, he wanted to devour the child the very moment he was born, but her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Captured within that one phrase is the entire story of the incarnation of Christ. His, his birth... His life and ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. He was snatched up to heaven. Satan wages war against God. He wants to devour Christ. He wants to devour the Redeemer. In one foul swoop to end it all, the war will be won. But Christ is born, the Son is born and snatched up to heaven. And Satan's plans are foiled. Now you may ask, where in Scripture do we see this? Where in Scripture do we see the dragon poised to devour the son of the woman? Well, remember when Jesus was born? Remember Herod and his plot? Not only plot, but his execution of all baby boys, two years and younger? Executed, torn from their parents' arms, and slaughtered. Behind that event stood the dragon. Do you remember the story in John 4 where the crowd seeks to, in their anger with Jesus, seeks to push him off of a cliff and end his life? Behind that crowd stood the dragon. Do you remember the, the story? Sorry, that was Luke 4. Do you remember the story in John 8 where a crowd tries to stone Jesus for blasphemy? Behind that crowd stood the dragon. Do you remember the plot of the Jewish leaders and of Pilate ultimately? Sentencing Jesus to death. Behind those Jewish leaders plotting against Jesus, behind Pilate stood the dragon, seeking to devour the son born of the woman, seeking to devour the Messiah, seeking to devour Christ. But Christ is not devoured. The text says He was snatched up to heaven. You see, even when Christ breathed His last on that cross as He was crucified, when it seemed like the end, when it seemed like evil had triumphed, that it was all over, when it seemed that Satan the dragon had finally devoured the sun, that even then things were not as they seemed. The grave could not hold Christ. 
Satan was not strong enough. Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering the dragon, conquering every last enemy. The whole New Testament declares to us that the cross, far from being a sign of the defeat of Christ, is a sign of Christ's triumph over Satan. The cross is the death blow to the dragon. The cross is the supreme moment of triumph of Christ over Satan. On an Easter Sunday when Christ bursts out of the grave, Satan knew that he had been conquered, that his war against God had been lost. And in verse 12 we read this, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He knows. He knows that he has been conquered. He knows that his end is certain. He knows that the cross is in fact not a place of victory, but the place where he was ultimately defeated. This is what we see happening in the drama of Revelation 12. Holy war between God and Satan. Satan lashing out, seeking to destroy, seeking to oppose, seeking to overcome God and his plans. Holy war. Which is what we see in verse 7, where we, then war broke out in heaven. Understand this, this war in heaven is won through an event on earth. It is won in Calvary at the cross. John writes that Satan was not strong enough that Satan had been hurled down. The language of war in heaven, we need to understand this, is apocalyptic symbolism. George Caird writes this, Michael's victory is simply the heavenly and symbolic counterpart to the earthly reality of the cross. Victory was won on the cross. So question three, how are you and I impacted? How are we brought into this story? The story, as I said, is not recorded here for entertainment purposes, but to prepare us, to encourage us, to warn us. How is it that the unfolding drama of this holy war between God and the dragon impacts us? Well, look with me at the hymn of victory vocalized beginning in verse 10. John says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. This drama, this holy war involving the woman and the dragon, the male child born of the woman, is the story of our salvation. Now has have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. This is the drama of our salvation, of God's redemptive work through Christ. Satan, our accuser, has been defeated, has been hurled down. In fact, the hymn declares this, of all those who are in Christ, those who have repented and believed, they have triumphed. They have triumphed by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. This is no bit of irrelevant theological prose or storytelling. This is the story of our redemption. This is the story of God through Christ saving you and me. However, that is not all that is said. That is not the only impact for us. We read on, but woe to the earth. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Satan is defeated. 
Christ has won the decisive victory over Satan. That is not in question. However, the end has not yet come in its fullness. Remember, remember to whom the revelation was written first? To believers living at the end of the first century in various cities throughout the province of Asia. Cities, some of whom, some believers in these cities who have already experienced the pressure of Rome in its opposition to their faith, their, their, their loyalty to Christ, their following Christ, saying, Jesus is Lord and Savior, not Caesar. They, they have felt the pressure. They have faced the opposition. And it's about to get worse. The suffering's about to get worse. And the question that would have been running through their minds and their hearts, and not only theirs, but through the hearts and minds of believers over the centuries, why? If the cross is the point of victory of God over Satan, if the cross is the point of victory over the dragon, if the victory is sure, if it's been achieved, why are we suffering? Why are we, why are we under this crushing pressure of opposition? Why are we facing death? And to prepare those believers living in the Roman province of Asia, to, to prepare believers throughout the centuries, God gives this revelation. Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover. He shows us the story. He shows us the story of our salvation, of what God has accomplished through Christ, of what is true right now, even now. But what we see is that the victory has been won the, the final end has not yet come. And Satan, the dragon, is filled with fury. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Wants to bring as much wreckage and destruction to humanity, to our lives, to the church, as he possibly can. That, that's what we see in the last part of our text. I want to read again verse 13 to the end. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Next week when we turn to chapter 13, we'll encounter the dragon and what the dragon will do in his rage. But brothers and sisters, the dragon is enraged at the people of God. The dragon is enraged at those who follow Christ. And He is intent on waging war against us. This is why the church suffers. This is why those who love Jesus suffer. Sometimes even to the point of death. But even though we will suffer, we need to know even in those verses, there is a reminder of God's care. This, the, the wings of an eagle and taking this woman into the wilderness where she's cared for for time, 
times and half a time. Let me just say, I mentioned this last week. Remember last week, the people of God, the two witnesses are commissioned to bear witness to Jesus, to testify about Jesus for how long? 1,260 days, or was it 42 months? Same deal, right? 1,260 days is four and a half, uh, four and a half months. Three, sorry, 42 months, three and a half years. Time, times, and half a time. It's all referring to the same period of time. And that period of time, this is no mystery to try and figure out. This is simply, the, symbolically, the period of suffering. The period of time between Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and Christ's return. We live in the midst of 1260 days. We live in the midst of 42 months, in the midst of three and a half years, in the midst of time, times, and half a time. This is the age of the church. This is the age where we are commissioned to bear witness. This is the age where Satan does his best to, to attack us. And this is the age where Jesus, God, cares for us. All these images flow together and create this, uh, this picture. The fourth question, how should you and I respond to this story? I want to try and be real practical here about how and you, and you and I need to respond, how we're called to respond. First, though the idea of a personal evil being called Satan may not be popular for modern people, the Bible is clear that there is a spiritual enemy, that there is one who opposes God and all that is good, who is intent on destroying us and bringing as much wreckage into the world, into God's plan, and particularly filled with rage at the people of God. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, we read this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. We have an enemy. An enemy who is out to destroy us, who is about bringing as much wreckage and destruction into our lives and the church and the world as he can. He is filled with rage. And we are called to not be unaware of his schemes to not give him a foothold. He has come, according to our text, to lead the whole world astray. He wants to lead us far from God. He wants to lead us into the destructiveness of sin. He wants to, to lead us into rejection of Christ in the face of suffering. He, he wants to, to lead us into spiritual indifference. Whatever road he wants to lead you on, he wants to lead us away from God, away from life, away from Christ. One of Satan's primary tools is the tool of lies. In John's Gospel, Jesus says He is the Father of lies. When He lies, He speaks His native tongue. Think about that. He opens His mouth and it's lies. Seeking to lead you astray, to deceive you, to deceive me. So how do we resist Him? How do we resist Him? We, we need the truth. We need to be people of the book. We need to be people who, who seek to saturate our hearts and our minds in Scripture, in God's Word, Jesus says, I am the way, the life, and the truth and the life. We encounter Jesus in His Word. I, I don't want to sit here and say, you know, you should be reading your Bibles because it's on this spiritual disciplines checklist. And if you don't, I'm going to make you feel guilty because you're a bad Christian. No, 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 no. We, we need to hunger for truth. We need, to, we need to know that there's an enemy out to destroy us. And we need to come to God's Word regularly, daily, and say, Jesus, speak to me. I need your voice. 
I need to hear you. I need to be reminded of what's true. I need to know of your great love. I need to know of your great grace. I need to know of the, the deceit of the enemy, the, the ways he's trying to, to, to bring wreckage and damage. I need to hear your, your voice, Jesus. We need to hunger and thirst for God's word to hear the voice of Christ. Scripture reveals to us there are a myriad of ways in which the enemy seeks to destroy our lives and seeks to lead us away. I think of Christ's parable of the soils, trouble and persecution. We can encounter those things, and I've, I've encountered this in my 20-some years of being a pastor. So many believers who come to me, and they're devastated because some suffering, some hard thing comes, in, and suffering, suffering is awful. I'm not making light of it. But we should not be surprised when we encounter it. We need to prepare ourselves. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. So will suffering and persecution lead us astray from Christ? What about the worries of life? Will we be so focused on things going on around us that we, we take our eyes off of what is unseen? Paul says, We're supposed to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is passing away, but what is unseen is forever. What about the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for things? We have an enemy who wants to destroy us, who wants to destroy your life and mine. And he doesn't care which path works. He wants to lead us astray from the one who loves us, the one who has redeemed us, the one who is truth. Satan is also called the accuser. Even in our text, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He seeks to throw our sin in our faces. To remind us of how we have violated God's laws. To remind us of how unworthy we are. And and one of the realities is that we need the truth of Jesus' Word to combat those accusations. Because when, when we hear those accusations, we can go wrong in a couple different ways. Uh, on the one hand, we can, we can begin to beat ourselves up, flagellate ourselves. We, we might weep over our sin, but it's, it's, it, we're just trying to pay for our sins through our own sorrow. Or we can... We can shift the blame. We can, we can blame others. You know, it was, it was my, my parents or my spouse or my kid. or you know, We can find ways to excuse our sin. We, we try to cover it. We try and make excuses when we hear those accusations. Let me say this. Psalm 32, this is sometimes one of the psalms that we will pray as a prayer of confession. Let me read these verses. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I did not cover my iniquity. Brothers and sisters, when we hear those accusations, we don't need to cover our sin. In fact, we're we're called to uncover it, to, to bring it into the light, to confess it to the Lord, We can hear those accusations, you're not worthy, and we can say, yes, I'm not worthy, but Christ has made me worthy. Christ has suffered my penalty. Christ has clothed me with His perfection. I stand before God, not in my own worthiness, but in His. We do not need to cover our sin. Christ covers it. Christ forgives it. 
two more things I want to say. First, if you are with us this morning and you do not yet know Christ, you've not repented and believed, I want to say this to you. You have a spiritual enemy who wants to destroy you. Whether you've ever acknowledged that reality, whether you want to now, whether you think you know, the idea of, a, of a, a, an evil spiritual being is, is, is crazy, I want to say to you, there is a spiritual enemy who wants to destroy you. And if you if you're just content to ignore that thought, he's content to leave you in that place. But I want to urge you. I want to urge you this morning to see this story of this cosmic struggle, this war that has been fought for your salvation. Satan wants to lead you astray. He wants to deceive you. He wants to bring wreckage into your life. He wants to keep you in the dark. But Jesus is calling to you. Jesus loves you. Jesus gave Himself for you. Jesus came and engaged. And on the cross, as He bled and died and gave up His life, He conquered and was victorious. So that all through repentance and faith, coming to Him and saying, Lord, I need Your grace. I can't fix myself. I come to You that all who do that will be saved, will receive life, will become part of the people of God. I urge you, repent and believe. Second, to those of you who are believers, in light of this story, in light of this drama we've watched unfold in chapter 12, I want to remind you that we face an enemy one who is out to destroy us. And he will seek to crush us with external pressure, persecution, or to destroy us internally through sin, through lies and accusation. And I want to ask you this. I want you to reflect on your own life. Paul says that we are not to be unaware of the enemy's schemes. So let me ask you this. If Satan wanted to trip you up, if he wanted to blow up your life, what area of your life might he attack? Where are you vulnerable? See, in the, in the letters that we encountered in Revelation 2 and 3, we saw in Ephesus a church that had lost their love for one another. Thyatira, we saw a church that had given in to sexual immorality. Laodicea, we saw a church that was failing to realize their deep need for Christ. They were self-sufficient. They thought they had it all together. Spiritually speaking, Jesus speaks messages them to them to, to warn them, to show them where they're vulnerable, to show them where they're already being deceived. What about you and I? What area would Satan go after? Would it be in the area of materialism, wealth, pleasure? Would it be in the area of pride? looking down on others? Would it be in the area of your sexuality? Would it be in the area of truthfulness and honesty? Are there other things in your life that if you're honest, you realize that you have made them into ultimate things and placed them ahead of Christ and your loyalty to Christ? Where would Satan go after you? 
I don't ask you that. I ask you that so that we are aware. And I want to encourage you as you think about, as you pray about, as you say, Jesus, show me, reveal to me, prepare me, that we would, as Psalm 32 invites us to do, not cover our sin, but go to a brother or sister and share that. Just say, I mean, we, we all face an enemy who wants to destroy us all by whatever means. And so what does it look like to be aware and to, to step into the light and say, here's where I'm weak. Here's where an attack might come. Help me be prepared. Help me lean in the truth of the gospel. We have an enemy, but he is defeated. But nonetheless, he is enraged and waging war against us, and we are not to be unaware of his schemes. Revelation 12 shares with us a powerful story. A story that can get our hearts racing and blood pumping. It opens our eyes to see the spiritual reality that we live in. We live in this world as those redeemed by Christ. His victory is sure. We are redeemed and in His grip. But His enemy, the dragon, is filled with fury. And he is lashing out in anger, in rage at us. So we need not fear, but we need to be prepared. We need to be grounded in the truth. We need to not be unaware of His schemes, but not have fear. I'm going to close with these words from Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One of the verses reads this way, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we, may, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, of course, is Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, the one in whose grace we stand. May we go into this week with our eyes open, beholding this drama, May we go with zeal and passion to stand with Christ, to seek Christ, to, to cling to Him in the face of whatever may come for His glory in our joy. Amen.